Favorite store, good to be back together again this past Sunday as we continue our journey through the book of Acts. We are uh, breaking the book of Acts up into different mini-series mini uh, throughout this time. Right now we're in a series called Characters in which we're highlighting some minor but powerful characters that we see glimpses of in the first church and in the, in the early church in the book of Acts. Today, I get to talk to you about Stephen. Uh, Stephen uh, was a pretty important character as he was the first Christian to ever be murdered because of his faith in Christ. And it reminds me a lot of what we have been facing over the last week in our culture as we've seen an invasion uh, on Congress, our nation's capitol building. Uh, I was reminded again of what it's like, um, well, what Stephen might have felt as he faced a mob or a crowd that was filled with violent thoughts and violent actions. And it gave me, his story gave me a fresh perspective that we should consider, uh, particularly right now in our culture. So for some quick context, the early church in the book of Acts is growing rapidly, but <clears throat> cultures are colliding. The Greeks and the Jews are figuring out how to do faith together for the first time ever. Jesus opening himself up to Jews and Gentiles has created this tension, and the early church is trying to navigate that. And that's how Stephen enters the fray of leadership in the early church. So I'm going to read some parts of, parts of Acts chapter 6 and 7 here uh, to give a brief glimpse of the story of Stephen. So beginning in Acts, 6, chapter one, or Acts chapter 6, verse 1. But as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve disciples called a meeting of all the believers, and they said, We apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. And so brothers... Uh, select seven men who are well-respected and are full of the spirit and wisdom. We will give them this responsibility. Then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word. And so everyone liked this idea and they picked some people. Stephen was one of those people. These seven were presented to the apostles who prayed for them. And as they laid their hands on them, uh, God's message continued to spread. The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem and many of the Jewish priests were converted too. Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed amazing miracles and signs among the people. But one day, some men from the synagogue of freed slaves, as it was called, started to debate with him. They were Jews from Cyrene, Alexandria, Cilicia, and the province of Asia. None of them could stand against the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke. So they persuaded some men to lie about Stephen, saying, We heard him blaspheme Moses and even God. This roused the people, the elders and the teachers of religious law. So they arrested Stephen and brought him before the high council. The lying witnesses said, This man is always speaking against the holy temple and against the law of Moses. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the temple and change the customs Moses handed down to us. At this point, everyone in the high council stared at Stephen because his face became as bright as an angel's. And then in Acts chapter 7, then the high priest asked Stephen, are these accusations true? This was Stephen's reply. Brothers and fathers, listen to me. And then all through Acts chapter 7, he launches into a condensed story of early Jewish history, describing important parts of Jewish heritage that we can't 
uh, that we can find in the books of Genesis and Exodus. And one of the highlights in his impassioned speech is uh, to the Jewish priests and this is the story of Moses after he um, had led the Jewish people out of slavery in Egypt. See, Stephen said to the priests, Moses himself told the people of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. Moses was uh, with our ancestors, the assembly of God's people in the wilderness when the angel spoke to him at Mount Sinai. And there Moses received life-giving words to pass on to us. But our ancestors refused to listen to Moses. They rejected him and wanted to return to Egypt. You stubborn people. Now he's talking to the priests. Stephen's talking to them. You are heathen at heart and deaf to the truth. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? That's what your ancestors did, and so do you. Whew. And that was the final straw. The religious leaders respond to this bold truth that Stephen shared to them by stoning him to death. Christianity's first martyr. And here's what popped to me in a new way reading this story. I've never noticed this, and it directly ties to what happened at our capital uh, last week. It's really been building in our culture for years. There's a particular truth that stirs up ire and anger and violence from people. When Jesus or his followers critique or correct the past. I'm reading through the book of John right now, so I just jotted down a few examples from that gospel of what happens when Jesus critiques or corrects the past. In John 5, Jesus heals a crippled man on the Sabbath. He corrected the true meaning of Sabbath, which had become a legalistic idol. And that Jesus made it again about what it was originally for, healing and rest. And the Jews wanted to kill him over it. And then in John 6, Jesus gives the bread of life sermon. And at the end, he elevates himself above sacred history, alluding to when God rained down from heaven uh, to feed the Israelites lost in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus said they ate bread and died. Anyone who eats this bread, referring to himself, will live always. Dozens of disciples left him that day because they couldn't handle Jesus reframing the past through himself. And then in John 10, Jesus, um, or the Jews picked up stones again, motivated to kill him because uh, he reframed the Old Testament through a new lens, inserting himself into the story. When Jesus or his followers reframe, critique, or correct the past, people lose it. In America, we have a generational cultural sin. And whenever we talk about it, it stirs up anger, violence, and attack. White privilege and systemic racism. You bring those up, people will lose it. Nostalgia is a strong wall in the hearts and minds of people. That is one of the things we are battling as Christians in our culture present day. I say this to you and to myself to remember that we are in good company when we critique and correct the history of our culture. We are in holy company with Stephen, Jesus, and others. And I'm continually strengthened by the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, and the last part of the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says, not only that, count yourselves blessed every time people put you down, or throw you out, or speak lies about you to discredit me. What it means is that the truth is too close for comfort, 
they are uncomfortable. You can be glad when that happens. Give a cheer even, for though they don't like it, I do. And all heaven applauds and know that you are in good company. My prophets and witnesses have always gotten into this kind of trouble. So if we're going to stir up trouble in holy ways, we must be holy people like Stephen. So to engage in centuries of generational sin, we must have a martyr's strength right now. And it takes an enormous amount of emotional and spiritual strength to engage strategically in a centuries-long battle against systemic racism. So maybe we all underestimate how much Christ wants to heal in our lives so that we can engage with a martyr's strength and courage. In a culture that screams to live your own truth, follow your heart, trust your instincts, we follow a king who invites us to die to ourselves and our instincts so that we can be reborn, remade, and restored in his image. If we want to see more heaven on earth and less hell, it starts with us refusing Christ nothing in our lives. If we can't die to ourselves, how the hell are we going to die for others? There's a line that came to mind this week as I thought about this story, and it's something I've been trying to live by. It comes from uh, the five personalities that God reveals in Ephesians 4. Paul wrote, the church is made up of apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. I'm not going to go into what those every single one of those means this, uh, today, but every one of us has a part of these personalities embedded within us. Typically, we are strong in one or two of them, but we have an ability to live all five of them out. Jesus was the perfect apostle, the perfect prophet, perfect evangelist, perfect pastor, perfect teacher. He had all five maxed out. We don't, but together we can and we do. And we have been supernaturally empowered with these personalities and they operate best in community. The two that came to mind in this cultural moment is that we need prophets and pastors. Prophets, uh, it's a strange biblical word, but really uh, in short, it means to tell the truth. Prophets are simply truth tellers. It's a unique ability uh, because prophets often see the truth before others do. For some reason or other, the truth is hidden from people and prophets point it out and the truth burns within them. This is truth that they feel must be shared and oftentimes this truth is rejected like Stephen was rejected. Uh, that's not close to the full description of a, prof a prophetic gifting, but it gives you a general feel. Our culture needs truth tellers. It is the gospel truth that will set people free. And we need pastors. Pastors are the shepherds, the ones that bring people uh, back into the fold, into the community, into the safety. So characteristics and qualities uh, of the pastoral heart tenderness, gentleness, patience, comfort, encouragement. Pastors are curious, they ask questions, and they listen with a relaxed, unhurried, and non-anxious presence. My hero pastor is Eugene Peterson. He said, you're at your pastoral best when you are not noticed. Use language that is conversational, not condescending, not manipulative but attentive and prayerful. As you pastor and prophesy to people, one strategy to consider 
separate people from the mob. They are only strong in numbers. Jesus did this all the time. He did it with Nicodemus in John 3, a Jewish priest, and he did it again in John 8 as a group of Pharisees were about to stone an adulterous woman. Jesus told whoever was sinless among them to throw the first stone. He brilliantly separated them from each other, and they became weak, and they walked away. To deal with white privilege, systemic racism, or other mob-like, crowd-like fervor. All right, one strategy that works is to separate them from their flock. Get them one-on-one -on -one and be patient and curious and tender because that's not what they're expecting. They're expecting attack. They're expecting violence to return violence. Don't do that. Love your enemy. Turn the other cheek. Be patient, curious, and tender as you pastor them into the truth. This works. All right, it's not the only thing that works, but it is one thing that works. And I know it works because I've experienced it and because I see Jesus and his disciples use this method throughout the New Testament. By no means do I think that's the only way that we can uh, attack uh, or solve or heal generational cultural sin. There are more ways, and I hope that those methods and those ways and ideas are stirring in you as you hear the story of Stephen. And I hope when you hear the story of Stephen, you will consider some perspectives of, of what God might be saying to you. And the question I would end with is, what are you going to do about it?